0: Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at BrickLane Brewing. We are grateful for BrickLane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 Triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. Thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word.
1: I had to go about it, write it out
2: and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you
3: It's the Fighter Word Cricket Podcast Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon I am back in London Jeff is still in Tasmania I'm pretty sure having uh, survived a week of isolation since the last time we recorded Uh, on the show today we're going to talk about everything that's been going on with the women's ashes so we're going to go over to the Caribbean where Ireland knocked off the West Indies and England are in a tussle with them at the moment we'll talk about India and South Africa their men have been playing their white ball series and especially after all all the ads and all the rest of it will come to a conversation with Heather Knight, the England Women's Captain, the World Cup winner in 2017. She's in Australia at the moment preparing to play uh, the standalone test match in the Women's Ashes starting later in the week at Marnica Oval in Canberra. Jeff, you'll be there at that. Uh, you have to get on a plane first and foremost to get over there having had COVID. I'm sure that'll be relatively straightforward but how are you feeling? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you've got to get it out of the way at this stage of things, uh, don't you? I'd, or you just run the line that Hobart was so beautiful you couldn't leave. Welcome <laughs> to the Hobart, California. Yes, I will be. I will be released in time to get up to Sydney for the final word match at Birchgrove, the beautiful Birchgrove Oval near Belmain, just on the harbour turf wicket. I've never played on a turf wicket. No, I've never in my life played on a turf wicket. Oh, good. This is going to happen. So I reckon around about the time this show's hitting the feeds, you know, if you're an early listener and you're in Sydney and you want to come down to Birchgrove by the end of the afternoon, uh, we'll be there with the Newtown Browns. That's the team we're up against. Going to start a new Mighty Ducks rivalry and take down those Browns. Um, so yeah, all that's happening ahead of the women's test on Thursday, which will be, which is good. It's a day one, not a not a day nighter. So we're back to the the red ball rhythm for the women's test.
3: Tell me a little bit about how you've pulled the team together. Who's representing the final word on, on the twenty fifth?
2: Uh, Jody Hicks correspondent John O'Halen will be there. I think I think opening the batting as a left-hander. We can have a left-hand right-hand combination. Uh, Andrew Dono Donison will be taking the new rock. Um, <laughs> It booming in swingers Huge. and uh, and and you know he's he's back down to his playing weight as well, so he's absolutely ready to have a big impact. Uh, Louis will be behind the stumps. Uh, Jono's uh, stepson will be taking the gloves. Uh, the young fellow fancies himself as a bit of a keeper, and uh, we go from there. We've got a, an eleven of listeners who will be he'll be shaping up and, and stepping out, and um, the first final word eleven in Australia.
3: The Discord channel popped off when we were playing. Uh, at Dulwich, uh, I guess it was in September, with a effectively an over-by-over over blog update. I wonder whether someone mm-hmm. can provide that kind of service so that I can stay in touch with the game through the wee hours of the night, which is entirely possible. I'm, I've been here back in the UK for four or five days and I'm still brutally jet-lagged. So it's, it's every chance I'll wake up and you'll still be playing. Mm-hmm. So all ahead of us, that's fun. I must admit, I'd kind of forgotten that game was taking place. So you, you squeezed it in, busy summer. You've managed to get COVID kind of at the right time in a way.
2: At the perfect time to be released in in time to play, so I've I've just dropped it in into the one gap of eight days in the calendar where it didn't mess up anything professionally. It messed up plenty of things personally, but um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but professionally we're okay.
3: So we're back on the Zoom uh, for the conversation this week. So uh, and we're both knackered, so this will go well. But no, we have got a great guest coming up in Heather Night and lots to get through. Uh, first things first. Uh, as we were recording together last week, it was right when we found out that the cops had busted up the post- test beers up in the hotel in Hobart which was the great non-story of our time really but it says a lot of that doesn't it about the Australian way call the cops not call the hotel or the very fact that the, the cops were intervening before the hotel staff were uh, as we've said before we are a country of cops.
2: Mm, yes we are, well, were a country cop lovers um, that's, that's definitely true although I think in this I think that was misrepresented I, my understanding of it was actually that um, old mate had lit up a cigar um, and was refusing to put it out and had been asked by the hotel staff and that's why the cops were called. The fellow who thought it was a good idea to take the video and then send the video to whoever he sent it to so that it ended up in the newspaper was also the one who um, who started it off by deciding to have a Don Corleone moment. So, you know, what 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 was cigar worthy at the end of that series, I'm not sure, but um, he thought something was.
3: Could be career limiting for Graham Thorpe, I suppose. We'll, we'll see uh, in the coming weeks. They'll be doing that, that broader restructure, that review that Andrew Strauss and Ashley Giles are involved in at the moment, back in England. Uh, by contrast, the Australian Test team uh, number one again for the first time since sandpaper. I must admit, I didn't realise that was in <laughs> that was in the offing. I didn't realise that they were like kind of close enough to reach number one, which says a bit about mm. the, the way that what is it the quadrennial cycle works. How, how some Test series stay in, some drop out. When they drop out, rel- relative to other teams and, and their series coming in and out, and the fact that though how they've do you gone get to number one for not playing. Well, they get to number one because they're measuring the series they have played in the four-year cycle. So, um, right. so I mean, you don't get penalised for series that you haven't played, which I right. suppose is a shortcoming of the system. Nick Savage had a had a graphic on news.com.au today, which reflects the fact that England have played 17 away test matches since October 2019, and Australia have played zero test matches away from home. So it does jar a little bit, but uh, I mean, when going through that, my main thought was, well, isn't this why the World Test Championship is actually a good thing? So. So I wish people would just stop sort of shit canning it and acknowledge that having the WTC in place, it, it makes the rankings not completely redundant, but they're definitely secondary compared to where they were before.
2: Mm, yeah, but I mean, are they, so presumably they're working out the rankings pro rata, not by mass not by volume, because if you can, say, play one test in four years and win it, then you will be, by definition, the number one test side in the world with your 100% win rating. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's a yeah, I mean, it, well, it's already a joke that Australia... They haven't played a test in a year since, you know, the start of these Ashes. How do you say you're, you're the best... We're the best team in the world. We never leave home and we don't play anyone.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's definitely the exposure. Um, it, I, I suppose it's more that where they allocated points was preferable to other teams where they lost points, right? That's the that's the measure. And it always has been. Australia have gone to number one before when we've kind of scratched our head and wondered how that was possible. But you know, I'm pretty sure that's the first time that's happened under Justin Langer's tutelage. I don't reckon they got to number one at any other stage uh, over the last four didn't, years didn't or so. Didn't
2: they after 2019 when they... Didn't they go number one for a bit? I
3: oh, did oh, I imagine that before oh, India did? Gee, maybe they did. Maybe they briefly got to number one. But the point here is is that, well, the very fact that we don't know says a fair bit. I remember when they went to number one in <laughs> New Zealand in 2016 and they did a presentation of the to Steve Smith and,
2: and all the rest of it. But In, bit, in yeah. Sri Lanka. Didn't it catch up with him in Sri Lanka? They, yes, they that's gave right. It, they gave it to him. They them. gave it to them in, in Pella Kelly and then by the end of the series Australia had lost it again I had to give it back because they'd just been <laughs> whitewashed.
3: I think it meant something when Australia was number one for a really long stretch of time and then South Africa... Overtook them in uh, briefly, albeit I think that mm. was in two thousand and three, and then when England went number one in two thousand and five after winning the Ashes, and, and likewise when they mm. when they went to the top after the twenty eleven series against India, having won the Ashes in Australia a lot more then uh, than I think it does now. When yeah, it's a bit of a rolling feast, and I think there's mm. a kind of a consensus that New Zealand have every right to call themselves the best team in the world because they won the, the final. And if we were sort of measuring the, the team that's hardest to beat, I think that'd be India, wouldn't it? I don't think there'd be much dispute, even though they, did, yeah. they, they didn't they did have a great series against South Africa, but taken as a whole, the team you'd least want to get maybe away from home would be India for all the reasons that we, we talked about with Harsha Boghle last week.
2: I think it's okay to have different things as well you can be the world champion that's not necessarily the the world number one it's like you know if you're doing the 400 meters slalom kayak singles or whatever you know you can be the the pan pack reigning champion or the you know the olympic medalist is different to the world champion is different to the diamond league winner is different to the you know whatever you can be all those things that different people can be the same different things at the same time. You, you get what I mean. I do. So New Zealand are the world champions of test cricket. They, they can also not be the number one ranked side currently. They're just the defending champs in WTC terms. Yeah. Uh, I
3: suppose it's a bit more clear-cut in women's cricket, really, because they don't fold test cricket into the rankings, it's just about the white ball stuff however, it's red ball cricket we'll be talking about for four days uh, later this week, we already touched on the fact that the uh, the standalone test match is going to be at Marnica, uh, the T20s were a little bit of a non-event, there was one played and two washed out there at Adelaide Oval not that well attended either, it was a slightly strange uh, match that first game because England did really really well I was quite worried about them and that was you know a discussion we had last week so I was quite worried about the fact that they were coming in off no prep, uh, You know they'd gone gone through that isolation process. COVID had had reached their Bubble or be it through the support staff, and whether it might go to pot. And look, they, they batted really well. They they set Australia one hundred and seventy uh, with White and Beaumont uh, leading the charge. White especially, uh, but Australia the gap there isn't it? Talia McGrath can be elevated to bat alongside Meg Lanning, and they just they just blitzed it in. And the the big story was Elise Perry not playing, uh, but Talia McGrath ensured that by the end of the night it was a fait accompli that she wouldn't be playing. That, that McGrath has overtaken her in this format of the
2: game. It, it was extraordinary. Really, that that whole match because Beaumont and Wyatt, eighty-two off the first ten overs. Mm. Wyatt especially was going after the spinners, hitting sixes down the ground repeatedly. And you know, one seventy when they racked that up, I thought, well, they're guaranteed to win this because you know, and and it will it'll make this series more interesting. England will get a win on the board because I think there, there were there'd been four bigger chases in women's t20s ever. Mm than 170. You don't chase scores that big. It just just doesn't happen in the format. And yet Australia did it one wicket down with three overs to spare. Yeah. Like, they didn't just win. They cruised it in. And it was – and this is after, you know, Beth Mooney, top-ranked in the format in the world, had a jaw broken and couldn't play. So without her – they popped lanning up to open the batting which is you know quite a good move because because lanning is so good at the top of the order they could have gone if they if they'd wanted to go more safety conscious they would have put perry in as an opener because that's where she does her best work in the big bash, and had you know someone like McGrath coming in down the order. Instead, they went, No, no, Lanning opens, McGrath's three, and Grace Harris comes in to belt the crap out of it at six. So it's a much more aggressive sort of lineup. And then, you know, even though Healy was dismissed, Talia McGrath, 91 off 49, she just came out and brutalized everything. And Lanning was playing a really good, fast-scoring hand, but was only had to be the second wheel, you know, just, just had to be the backup and turn the strike over and, and hit the odd boundary herself. So it was a, an extraordinary display of power. And, and we saw McGrath starting to do that against India last September, but, you know, this this was next level. This was real, like arrival at the top sort of stuff.
3: Yeah, and we've heard Matthew Mott, uh, the Australian coach, talk about this, I suppose, a, a few times in the last three or four years, really since that turning point when they lost the, the semi-final of the 2017 one-day World Cup, that even though they're, they're way out ahead as the number one team, they want to keep taking it to the next level. They don't want to get comfortable. And I suppose by leaving Perry out and charging McGrath with that responsibility and chasing down that total so aggressively, that's reflective of that mindset that they're just not satisfied. They they always want to take it to the next level. And in terms of the the one-day World Cup in New Zealand, if it goes ahead, and let's hope it does uh, in March and April, that's fairly daunting that they can just, you know, make a fundamental shift to the team like leaving out Perry. And it is. I know she didn't play in the World Cup win in 2020, but just the idea of her sitting on the bench and playing for Australia the following day and all the rest of it. And it's like it never happened.
2: It, it's extraordinary. It, it, Elise Perry is Australian women's T20 cricket. She, the start of her career, the, the team, the Australian women's team had played three times ever before Elise mm. Perry started playing T20 internationals. <laughs> then she's played 126 since and they would have played, I think it was 148. So the 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 22 that she'd missed while injured or, you know, absent for some reason, different to being dropped. Uh, but she played every game that she was available for between those dates between 2008 and this year. And this was the first time where they had a fit, healthy, ready-to-go Elise Perry and said, no, thanks, we don't need you. And that does feel like a big t- turning point. It's not just relying on her as the undisputed champ who must play because it's it's like, OK, well, we have 11 players who are better at this format now than you are and, and without wanting to sound harsh it's it's important it's a significant moment to say that okay well the the game has moved on from needing like she will still be important in 50 over cricket and in test matches and she could still come back in t20 cricket who knows she's mm. she's got that incredible ability to adapt but right at the moment there were better options available and that in itself is is a really significant landmark
3: yeah, no, that, that that's well put. I think, and I suppose at Canberra, she has been the star of those Test victories in England and in Australia uh, in the last couple of Ashes contests. She made the double ton at North Sydney and the century at Taunton uh, in 2019. So she'll be front and centre uh, when you get to Canberra in, in a couple of days. Uh, unfortunately, there's some rain forecasts for there as well. So I mean, the, the disappointment of having two of those T20s wiped out. Uh, in fact, as Hypercourse pointed out uh, on Twitter, it's the first time we've had uh, a women's Ashes match in the multi-format era so 2013-14 to now be washed out it's a bit of a blessing for England that they they effectively scrap a win via the two no results and they they come to Canberra Mm. thinking about the broader series they come to Canberra not being blown away we've had that before where England have been down um, as it was in in 2019 they lost all three one days and they were so far behind there was no real way back you know Australia were able to game the test match and play for the draw whereas this week I don't expect we'll see that I, I hope we'll see both teams like, right, okay, if we want to we want to win the Ashes, we, we're going to have to try and win the Test match even if there is rain about.
2: On, on the flip side though, the T20s would be England's best format and the one in which they'd be most likely to challenge Australia. So True. it also, despite... How well Australia batted in the first? England still showed that they could make runs. They could they mm, could put mm. up a score. And had they had they been able to bowl better, they they could have. You know, they they probably weren't going to win the second and third. But it was more likely, I think, than them winning the test match or or challenging Australia over fifty overs. But I guess the main worry with the playing for a draw sort of thing is that England will know that if Australia win the test, the Ashes are gone. Australia retain will will be unchallengeable for retention if they win the Test match. So that may make England more defensive in saying, well, let's try to hold them to a draw and then try to turn over, you know, go 2-1 in the one days and, and win it that way. But for Australia, there's probably not um, there's more incentive to go for it because they might as well. They they have less to lose, I suppose.
3: Yeah, and I think this is why they, they moved the test to first in the series. It was meant to yeah. be, starting the series. That, that was how it was when uh, India played England last year in a multi-format series where... There was none of this kind of idea that a draw could be to the advantage of one team or the other. And we're going to go around and have the same conversation we always do, aren't we, that every women's test that's played. And the good thing is that there have been a glut of them in the last 12 months. By a glut, I mean this is the fourth in the last seven months. But still, that, that's a pretty good strike rate compared to one in every two years as it was before or, or two and a half years when the Ashes cycle uh, is, is... The fourth um, or the third? I think it's the fourth, isn't it? Australia played... England Australia played. played India. England oh no, played sorry. India. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. But there, there's going to be another test match this year in England. That's why I'm I'm, uh, I'm. 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 I believe there'll be another test match in in England this year. So against um, a, against South Africa, I think is the is the oh, suggestion okay. later in the year. I mean, I don't think that's been announced. Right. But that that's the assumption is that the ECB will invite South Africa to play a test match uh, on the basis that. South Africa are dead keen and and it worked well last year with the multi-format series being rolled out uh, to India as well so that's a a positive to look forward to but yeah we're going to have that same conversation around the the suitability for uh, women's test cricket based on how the result goes and that'll be frustrating no matter what happens so let's just hope the rain stays away I mean yeah, we would have got a result at Bristol uh, and, a, and a cracking finish if it wasn't rain affected on, on day three and day four. We probably would have got a result in the test match at the Gold Coast in September as well, which uh, suffered a, a deluge on night one and night two. And that wasn't far away from being tasty as well. So yeah, hopefully uh, you'll get enough cricket in. And enterprising captaincy, we, we, we touched on it last week, but Heather Knight's been around around the block a few times now when it comes to test cricket. Likewise, Meg Lanning, like, they know how to set games up now in a way that would have been, more difficult when they were first starting out and the other point here is that hopefully everything crossed the surface is suitable and is quick and has plenty of grass on it and does provide the chance for a team to take 20 wickets and you know if a team's all out for 150 on day one that's a good thing I mean you know it'll obviously mean that the team that's rolled early will will struggle but it'll give um, both teams a better chance of doing what they need to do to get a result inside
2: four days even if it does rain that is what we need. Uh, the chances of Australia blasting out England will be reduced because Taylor Vallemont's not playing. Um, did her foot again, the mm. same bone she had a stress fracture in that kept her out for nearly a year. So that's really awful. Um, that's, you know, yeah, it's one of those ones where you you then wonder, okay, what's the long-term future look like if it's the same injury, the, yep. same, the same type? Um, Darcy Brown is likely to play because Matthew might want to pace and so there's some talk that maybe Stella Campbell gets called up from the A squad because she played against India, um, bowled poorly, but she might be better for the run and, and sort of mm-hmm. have a better idea of what she's doing second time around as, as another tall quick. And if not, then I suppose it's Darcy Brown with pace, Megan Shoot with swing and then the two spinners in Jonathan and King Talia McGraw will be in the top order somewhere and can bowl and there'll probably be another all-rounder at seven you'd think Healy will keep an open so there'd be either Annabelle Sutherland or Nicola Carey um, at seven but the other thing is that Mooney is a good chance to come back she 's had surgery, yeah, broke her jaw nine days ago, and she 's saying she wants to play the test match, so um, I guess the likelihood of her getting clocked in the jaw again is relatively low, but yeah she 's a tough character
3: and Mooney didn 't open uh, in England last time. did she open the batting against India? I think she did. I think she did, yeah. So um, she batted down at number six, I think, yep. at, at Taunton. So the only reason I raise that is they've got flexibility there, don't they, that she could yep. um, she could slot into that number six num- – well, not number seven, but number six if they wanted to play yeah. Um, an extra specialist bat and balance up the team that way. As for England, I mean, there was some scrutiny the last time around about the fact that Georgia Elwes was picked and didn't have much of an influence in the game. Uh, she won't be part of the eleven this time, so uh, that might free them up to play an extra specialist bowler, but um, but yes, yeah, still a couple of days away, so we haven't really dug too deeply into those conversations as yet, but uh, yes, uh, it, it, the main thing here, hopefully both captains go out there, and I expect they will, wanting to win the test and, and the surface is equal to that.
2: The... Women's World Cup final, the 50-over final, not being on free-to-air TV. That was a story that's being uh, talked about quite a lot the last few days.
3: Yeah, so the entire tournament is going to be uh, on subscription television, and this caused a fair bit of consternation. Elisa Healy had a big whack around it, um, and not not unreasonably. And then the story was kind of of added to uh, saying that KO are going to offer it all up for free, so it will be free to access. And I think that's the main point here. I, I mean, I get the frustration that Nine haven't seen fit to buy it alongside the men's rights. So this was one one broader story about the men's World Cups are going to be on Channel 9 for uh, the Australian Games plus the final, and that won't be the case for the women. But you look back in... 2017, most of it was behind the, the Foxtel paywall without the ability. I know, I know the Australian games were on, on nine go, but I guess the point here is, is that if the whole competition is available to watch free to access, yeah, there's that hurdle of having to sign up to a, a digital platform. But I mean, we've seen last year in England that um, Sky Cricket put all of the women's cricket uh, on the YouTube channel and that worked really well. So yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as clear as you know, if cricket isn't on free to wear television anymore, it automatically a bad thing it's more about being able to access it for free and it feels like this will be okay I mean it's not perfect but you know it's not quite as dire as it looks like for a couple of hours yesterday when when people thought it could be all behind a paywall.
2: I think that was the change I think the the um, broadcasters were quick enough to make that shift I'm not sure if that was their plan before people started getting annoyed about it but yeah the, the two main things being that people who can't access decent internet coverage, can't stream games. You know, if you're in remote Mm -hmm. regional areas and so on, then you've got no ability to access that. Um, And and the other part of it being that TV does a lot more just in putting it in front of people there's still an awful lot of households that just have the tv on and so the difference between having to go and find it on a streaming platform so that means the people who already are into it and want to watch it will be able to find it but it doesn't win over anybody new and, and that's the big opportunity and selling point with world cups is that they those are the events that get people interested um that get new you know, first time watchers interested to get kids who haven't been into the sport interested, and so that is still a major loss. Even if free to wear for people like us seems like a bit of a dinosaur, um, it's it's not for a lot of other people still.
3: Yeah, that, that's a really important counterpoint. And I agree with all of that. Um, that yeah, you're right. That sort of casual fan factor, uh, and you know, we see that during Olympic games and Commonwealth games historically, don't we? It's the it's the picking up a sport peripherally that can drag someone in, and hopefully that'll be the case with the Commonwealth Games here later in the year too but yeah I I suppose that the main thing is is that people will be able to watch it uh, you know in a a relatively straightforward way with the exception of those without a reliable internet connection but yeah I, I, I sort of feel as though this is going to be more and more the way that cricket is so we should get used to that even if um, we don't necessarily like it or feel comfortable with it Um, this will be more the way that cricket is offered up in in a free-to-access way more than necessarily a free-to-air way with the anti-siphoning list being part of that too with the final like that's interesting to me that the anti-siphoning list allegedly according to reports won't factor in the women's world cup final but it certainly did capture the Men's World Cup final in in previous cycles when Australia have played So when it has been largely on subscription television
2: However it it came about, whatever means it took, you would have been keeping an eye on the Irish team in the Caribbean. (laughs) They had their first series win away from home the Irish men's uh, 50 over team. They didn't win the first game, but they came close and it felt like that. those were the building blocks so they made 245, chasing 269 almost got there Andrew Bell-Burney, one of your favourites, made 71, Harry Tector, the young fellow made a half century, and they took the momentum from there, um, and so the, the next time around, they got a Decent slice of luck with Duckworth Lewis giving them a reduced target, but they they ran it down in 36 overs. They had to make 168, and then they had another run chase in the third game where they bowled out the West Indies for 212, and then managed to to get there with a few overs to spare, eight wickets down. But it, it was it felt like it was a bit of a coming of age for that team but also especially for, for harry Tector who played a big role in throughout the series so played made runs in all of those matches
3: yeah that's it he made his uh, one day international debut in 2020 against england when they when they won that uh, final one day he was part of that he made 40 odd there i think from memory but a couple of half centuries here uh, the most fascinating part of the whole series was andy McBride batting number three now andy McBride is i mean you know he bats at nine or ten he bowls off spin hmm. and jared kimber's written brilliant piece around him being used effectively as a pinch blocker because they they made the assessment that they don't want him to soak up balls at number 8 or number 9 towards the end of an inning, so they're letting him letting him bat at number 3 backing his technique to hang around and, and accumulate and accumulate he did, he made 34 from 50 in the first game uh, 35 from 45 in the second game and 59 from 100 in the third game, uh, batting at number 3, uh, Jared's compared him to to Imran Khan and the role that Imran Khan played in the nineteen ninety two World Cup final, quite a quite a funny segue there in the in the piece that he wrote. But yeah, so Andy McBride also picked up um, four for twenty odd in the third game. So with his off breaks, so yeah, career uh, sort of reborn at, at age twenty eight. But yet uh, about Bernie and the runs, Tector, who is going to be a big deal. I think he's twenty three now, and I would say he'll be the sort of right in the middle of that engine room uh, as they progress. And the squeaky bum win there uh, in in the final game with uh, Mark Adair and, and, and Craig Young who, who took wickets in the first game but they got them over the line uh, 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 for that ninth wicket partnership in the third and it puts Ireland to, to third on the uh, one day World Cup Super League table and that may not sound like a big deal but because they've played 18 games they've, they've played a lot more than other countries take for example let's scan through the table here Afghanistan have played five and India have played nine but the top eight teams qualify there and Ireland have only two more series, both of which are at home, one against Bangladesh and one against New Zealand. If they can scrape, I don't know, if they can scrape three wins from the six games they've got remaining, they'll probably qualify in one of the automatic spots, which means that you know, one of the big teams will drop out. So we're 18 months away from that, but a bit of a, well, not even that actually, we're, we're in 2022, aren't we? It'll be this year. This will mm-hmm. all be resolved in the middle of this year. So watch this space on that front. It'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out. But yeah, a, a momentous achievement for Ireland's men who have been derided a bit, I reckon, Jeff, in the last 18 months, two years, as, you know, oh, well, golden generation have all retired. Uh, the next lot aren't much chopped. Well, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be some sort of team to knock off the West Indies at home as, as England are learning it. At the moment, England were pumped in, in the first T20. I mean, there's no rest here, is there? There's straight into the another series, the Windies. But they, they flogged England in the opening T20, bowled them out for 103. Jason Holder took four for seven. God knows where he was in the um, at the start of the T20 World Cup. And then England um, fought back and won a thriller uh, in the second game, which was last night. Jason Roy, back in the runs. He made like a 34-ball century in, in the warm-up game, I think. So he's not far <laughs> away from cracking the code again. But at one stage, the Windies... Chased facing 172, were 98 for eight in the 16th over and totally cooked and then Akil Hossein and Romario Shepard who I think he, that's the best named duo in world cricket at the moment uh, they made 44 not out each and they were two runs away from one of the great stolen victories ever. Mm-hmm. They, needed 20, they needed 30 runs from the last over and they got 28 of them off Saqib Mahmood mm-hmm. with uh, Akeel twatting three sixes in a row to finish the game but it would have been the, the modern day Bruce Reid Alan Lamb uh, had they had they pulled it off there and, and struck 30 off the last over at T20 to snatch it.
2: I, I I don't want to I don't want to be accused of being a killjoy in this in this scenario but I feel this game has been overcooked as a close contest. They needed 20 off the last three balls. You can't get 20 off the last <laughs> three balls. You can only get 18 off the last three balls unless there's some sort of mistake. So, yes, they got 18 off the last three and it ended up that, oh, England won by a run, but it wasn't actually close. Because, and and people But he had, bowl, but he had s- bowl two
3: wides. Sakeba so had bowled yes. two wides earlier in the over. I suppose it's that, yeah, you're right, mathematically, you know... 2018, three sixes,
2: all the rest of it. But Mm.
3: you could imagine a scenario where there's a full, you know, a waist high, full toss there, can't you?
2: But I think that's why maybe he got hit for three sixes because he just bowled three slot balls mm-hmm. one after mm-hmm. the other. And I reckon like people were getting into him saying terrible death bowling. I was like, he probably figured if I try to bowl a Yorker or something, it might slip, it might go down leg side, it might be a wide. He'd already – well, he'd bowled a couple and got away with one that should have mm-hmm. been a wide and wasn't called. And I reckon he was just shitting himself about bowling <laughs> another one and was like, I don't care if these go for six, I just need to land them on the pitch in front of the player. And as long as I do that, we win and that's what happen.
3: So that series continues. I think they're playing in Jamaica, aren't they? The the England... I oh know they're playing... No, they're not, are they? They're playing uh, in Barbados at the moment. Uh, we'll keep moving around on white ball cricket. To so the India 50-over series against South Africa, which wrapped up as well uh, in Pyle and Cape Town. South Africa swept them. And again, kind of going back to that one-day Super League, South Africa were winless in that On the bottom of the ladder after seven games. So they actually really needed to not just win, but win well, and they did. All three games were kind of in that 250 to 290 range for both teams. A little bit old school there, but yeah, the final match. Uh, South Africa chased down 290 with Quinton de Kock making 91. Bavuma made a century in the second game, leading the team. Rassi van der Dussen, an unbeaten 129. Uh, I guess it's a, a reminder there of how important Quinton de Kock is in that team, who led the runs across the series. Now he's retired from, from test cricket. And Shadul Thakur uh, on, the, on the other side of the equation, made an unbeaten 50 and an unbeaten 40, in addition to what he was doing with the ball. So, India mm-hmm. defeated uh, under Rohit Sharma, but um, I suppose they'd want to get home and reset, having lost the tests and, and now having uh, having lost the one-day internationals. It's quite the fall, considering
2: they won the first test match and lost all the five games that followed. And Indian cricket Twitter going feral with Sack Dravid. I'm like, didn't he get the job about four weeks ago? <laughs> like, am, I, am I hallucinating here? Didn't he just come in? Um, yeah. Yeah. It was it was a, I think this this Indian team's just bloody exhausted. I mean I've yeah. been playing cricket non-stop somewhere since I don't know since I was about 12 <laughs> um and it feels like they need a maybe need a little bit of a break things are things are at things have been strained things have been stretched and and Coley is back in the runs with 50s in in the one dayers but um still can't convert one still has that that monkey on his back about not getting 100 for you know Three years now, it's um, uh, it's starting to grow into a much bigger monkey.
3: Well, what what it's doing is you're talking about Indian cricket Twitter. I mean, it's div- the dividing line is whether Virat should be um, excommunicated or, or whether he should be um, elevated to some higher status than captain. To uh, uh, you know, if you if you if you if you just <laughs> there, there's no middle ground on Coley at the moment. I've noticed on Twitter either he he has to go, he should never play again, or um, or leave Virat alone, leave Brittany alone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it's there's, there's a bit of both going on on there in that horrible website. Speaking of people getting a, a breather, uh, Brendan Taylor's getting a, a breather courtesy of the ICC. Uh, we've just picked up this statement before hitting record, so haven't really taken in much of the response, Jeff, but it all sounds pretty dreadful, really, uh, in relation to some approaches from bookies and, and some cocaine and some blackmail and some cash and now what sounds like will be a long time
2: away from the game. Sex, Lies and Videotapes starring Jennifer Jason Lee uh, Yeah, it would, we've got the version of events from Brenda Taylor, so there hasn't been any time to investigate yet whether this story stacks up or not. But his, his story was he was invited to India by a, a bloke who was talking about T20 leagues and said he would pay him 15 grand to come and have a meeting with him, um, which Brendan said I thought was dodgy, but... I also had no money because Zimbabwe cricket hadn't paid anyone for months and he didn't know what was going on and he needed to get a payday. So he figured he'd at least go and check out whether it was kosher. And then off they went they all had a bunch of drinks and whipped out the Coke and he got blazed with these guys and then uh, then they said, we've got you on video and we'll blackmail you unless you, you know, spot fix for us. And then he fled the country with the, the money that they gave him and reported it to the ICC four months later. So that's why he's getting the ban because he didn't report it immediately, but he did report it of his own volition. Um, that seems to be uncontested at this point and now he's, um, he's, this was a couple of years ago so he's been living yeah, with sure. this for a couple of years while they've been investigating. He's had this in the back of his mind and not knowing if he's in danger and all the rest of it and uh, it's obviously taken a massive toll and he's checking himself into rehab and trying to sort his life out so um, good luck to him on that front and yeah it's the kind of thing you hear about all the time and, and it, I think what it really underlines, yeah we don't know the details but what it really underlines is how vulnerable vulnerable especially players from countries like Zimbabwe and countries where they're not being paid properly and reliably that's when bookies get their hooks in you know they're not they don't have the same leverage to go after Australian players or English players because they're being paid so well but we're expecting players from other countries to shape up against the teams who are so well funded um when they don't get paid well enough to make a proper living yeah
3: and and I suppose that the the, the most recent two high profile uh, cases. This will be that I'm sure. Well, before that, it was Heath Streak, wasn't it? So different generations, but both out of the Zimbabwean system. So that's all rather sad. And yes, as you said, there he's checking himself into drug rehab as of tomorrow. So a fair bit to run on that story. We'll we'll uh, we'll talk more about it. I'm sure next week, uh, Jeff. Um, that's the end of our rather workmanlike conversation. Uh, we we are both knackered, aren't we? <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> and it's always harder down the Zoom screen. But we've uh, we're we're through our agenda for for the time being anyway. Before we come to the interview, so. I think it's time that we just hit pause
2: and commit ourselves to tell a story or two. It's time for... Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's the game of The Final Word, the game that we play with all the people on our Patreon page. They're the ones who fund the show. They're shady anonymous backers of The Final Word, and what they <laughs> do is they send in contributions, uh, financial contributions that are not round numbers. They're, they're, they're specific numbers, and the numbers relate to cricket in some way, and, and the number that has come in. It's come in from Shravan Kumar, uh, and it is in Swedish Krona. And I note that in the clue, Shravan is hopeful of being the first person to pledge in Swedish Krona. I think, Shravan, unfortunately, you were just pipped to the post mm. by Richard Moore the other week who came in in Swedish Krona. But you wouldn't have known this at the time, so you would have lived with the dream of being the first Swedish Krona pledger when Swedish Krona became available. But the number is 48 Swedish krona and 44 whatever the cents are in Swedish krona, (laughs) 48.44. Okay. So, and and it comes with
3: a fairly chunky clue. Let's do my best to get through it. So, 48.44 is a number associated with someone who we hope will take Swedish cricket forward to the next level. Hmm. I've got an idea who I think this might be, but I'm interested Mm -hmm. as to where you take
2: it. Well- we have to start with Sweden, Swedish cricket. Uh, Sweden joined the ICC in 1997. They're not in the one-day Super League with Ireland, but, <laughs> but they dream of it one day. Um, they, they got associate status in 2017. They play in the ICC Europe tournaments. They've had a couple of stints in Division One. Uh, they hosted one of the ICC Europe tournaments in 2016. I have learned today that there have been cricket clubs, at them in Sweden since 1883. But there's been more of a recent influx with uh, lots of migrants from cricket-playing countries coming in. It means that the local scene's got a lot bigger. They're saying it's increased by 300% in the last couple of years. Uh, they've got a national team where most of the, the national team players are from Indian or Pakistani or Afghan backgrounds, uh, but they've put together this national side and they wanted someone to take it to the next level. And who was that going to be? Jonty Rhodes signed up in late 2020 to be the coach of Sweden and uh, he's doing a lot of grassroots stuff, player development, youth systems, all the rest of it and, and trying to establish a, a stronger base for cricket in the country. They haven't been able to play much since he signed up because of COVID, but he's been doing all that behind the scenes work. So, 48.44, Jaunty Rhodes. How does that link to Jaunty Rhodes? Well, what is what is Jonty Rhodes most famous for, Adam? Uh, well, I, I suppose it's the run-out in the 1992 World Cup. Would that be reasonable? Yep, that's reasonable. The the, the diving run-out of, of who? Uh, that would have been uh, Pakistan, Inzamam al wasn't it? Diving away when Inzi was caught short. Yes, in, Inzi came down, turned back, got sent back. I think it was... Maybe it was Imran Khan batting at the other end, actually, when you're... Okay. Uh, what you were talking about earlier with him batting up the order run chase, they needed I don't know quite a few off the last six or eight overs or whatever it was and but but inzi was was going well. he was clobbering them and was hoping to run this total down and there was a chance he might have been able to do it. I think they'd, I think they had maybe six or eight not for overs those pesky to go kids with. I would have done it exactly, exactly. So with six or eight overs left where they needed I don't know eight and over or something like that, he was clubbing them. And he was run out, and at the point that he was run out, he was on 48 from 44 balls when Jonte Rhodes came flying through the air. 48-4-4. Forty-eight, four, four. Very good, very good.
3: Yes, I, I was. I, I did think John T. Rhodes. Uh, I was taking a bit of an interest in Swedish cricket probably two years ago. I, I've, I've got a, a strong interest in an all-rounder called Martin Anderson with two S's who is eligible to play for Sweden. He plays for Middlesex. And I've sort of wrote in the past that I feel like Martin should play a little bit for Sweden now just to, you know, why not in the off-season uh, on his way through to playing for England one day. Uh, who's to know? Anyway. Uh, that, that's my interest in Swedish cricket that, that Martin would go on to, to do that because he, he's got skills. And Shravan, for your trouble, uh, for the effort you've gone to in pledging with us on the Patreon page, you win a slab of Brick Lane. Or or you can gift it to anybody who lives in Australia. I'm not sure where you are, Shravan. You might be in Australia, you might be somewhere else, but it's the gift of giving that we're all about here on The Final Word. And uh, we were able to contribute to something this week, and that's Brick Lane doing very well in the Gab's Hottest 100 uh, Craft Beers poll. Uh, And we thought, who better to bring on to The Final Word to explain what this all means then. Resident beer guru, Matt Beggs. Beggsy, uh, thank you for coming back on the show. You're a returning guest now. Can you try and put in perspective what it means that the One Love Pale Ale has come in at number 21 in this poll? It, it seems bigger than uh, bigger than the Beatles, the, the number of people who are talking about this on social media during the week.
4: So to put it in perspective, the poll started in 2008. So it started is a way to measure the craft beer industry in Australia, and to measure it's to measure what people are drinking, and as it's grown over the years, you can see how the market has changed. And for a brewery like Brick Lane, not only to have one beer in the top 100, but to have two, mm. it shows that they have a good place in the marketplace. And especially, One Love had went up, I think, over 20 spots this year. So that shows it's actually a beer that's developing a growing audience and a growing popularity, which is what. You want, and it was actually the third highest polling Victorian based beer, Mm. which I think is another massive feather in the cap. So you can just see next year, it probably, if it continues that growth, potentially it starts to hit the top 20 and then cracks that very hard to crack into top 10.
2: I've often thought, Matthew, that in many ways, Brick Lane is the wiggles of beer. Um, you know, many many colours and varieties, an Australian icon, um, growing <laughs> in, in popularity each year. Is this now borne out in, in the Hottest 100 success of both?
4: Uh, abs- absolutely. And I look at, say, One Love, but I also look at Sidewinder, with Sidewinder being also making the top 100, but Sidewinder being a low-alcohol beer, is also showing that it's at that cutting edge of the market. It was the third highest low slash non-alcoholic beer in the top 100, which is showing that BrickLane is actually making a good judgment of where the marketplace is starting to head so towards that sort of lower non-alcoholic beer as that sort of replacement sort of thing where you can have a beer during the week and not be worried about alcoholic content and things like that, which is one of the things that I guess has come out of, especially in Victoria probably the past two years, that if you want to be during the week, you're not always going to go search for something high ABV. You want something at that lower end and Sidewine is hitting that brief perfectly.
3: Thanks to everybody from the Final Word community who got out there and voted. Jeff and I spoke about it for about, I suppose, three or four weeks. If you could vote to do so, and um, and they've reached number 21 in the poll, their best yet results. So congratulations to the team at Brick Lane. We, of course, are in proud association with them on the Final Word. Onwards and upwards, and uh, bricklanebrewing.com is the website. We will have a new offer code coming out next week to start February where you can get a 15% discount. And as you put it, Begsy, we'll continue on our beer journey as well uh, on the Final Words. support them uh, however you can and thank you as well for for coming on and for being such a fine supporter of the show
4: no dramas no worries at all
1: Hi I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Cole
3: It's a final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And with us today, we have the England women's captain, Heather Knight. Uh, She's led this England team since 2016. They're world champions in the 50-over format of the game in a famous day at Lords in 2017. And she is back in Australia for a second Women's Ashes campaign. Uh, You're in the nation's capital. How are you going being back in Australia, a country you've spent so much time but not really being in Australia at all, given your kind of bubble to bubble uh, in a very much a safe living environment due to COVID?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, Yeah, it's a bit strange. It's certainly one of the most weirdest tours I've been on. We've been in about 10 days now, and to be fair, the goalposts have shifted about eight or nine times, to be honest. We've had a few curveballs thrown in there. Uh, We've had a little bit of freedom, actually, which has, has been quite nice. We've been able to eat outdoors at restaurants, which has made a big difference, actually. Um, something that we fought for a little bit with Cricket Australia to just to have a bit of normality and, and just try and keep everyone mentally sane, I think. Uh, so, yeah, nice to, to be in Australia, albeit on what is very much a slightly different tour this time.
3: I suppose when we think of a cricket captain, we think about leading the team on the fields, but it takes on a whole different role when you're, almost advocating on behalf of your team with an administration like Cricket Australia. We heard Joe Root talk about this quite a lot in the men's tour as well, that you've got these far broader responsibilities uh, with the team looking to you, presumably.
1: Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations since we were out here. The, The rules that we were going to be under basically changed whilst we were in the air. And after living under restrictions for pretty much two years now, I think everyone's sort of a little bit more towards the end of their tether with it and, and losing a bit of patience so we felt like we'd had a, a really good record with living pretty safely but li- having a little bit of freedom within those roles so um, yeah lots of conversations with, with players and staff about how we want the tour to run and, and how we can obviously keep it safe, but also look after people mentally and, and have a bit of sanity. We've, we've also got partners and families and kids out here. So obviously that affects them, the restrictions we're under. And, and I think a lot of families wouldn't have come, to be honest, if they'd known that it was going to be in complete bubble. So I think it was pretty important that that we had those conversations and have that little bit of freedom, albeit obviously trying to live as safely as we can and, and avoid the dreaded covid
2: and it's not likely to get a whole lot better with the World Cup either, is it? You've got a quarantine again to go into New Zealand. You've got, you know, they're a country that's that's really just dealing with COVID breaking out there for the first time. And so it's, it's almost a time warp going over to New Zealand and, and dealing with dealing with it the way that other places were dealing with it a couple of years ago.
1: Definitely, and a few weeks ago before we left, we were talking about whether the Ashes was even going to happen, and then obviously it's been crammed into quite a short space of time, um, which is a, a pretty tough schedule to live under. And yeah, it's not a great timing, is it? New Zealand's not looking the best either with that quarantine, and the dates that we were due to go, we we're going to have a little bit of a break, just four days for for the players and staff in Australia after this tour, just to to break up what's a pretty intense period, and we've lost that as well, so. Yeah, it's quite strange um, not sure if there's been any conversations about moving it previously um, I'd be very surprised if there isn't because I think New Zealand is one of the most Difficult countries to get into at the moment. And I think we'd be taking up so much quarantine space. But obviously, those decisions are above me. And it looks like it's still going to go ahead uh, from what I can tell at the moment.
3: Yeah, the decision might be above your pay grade to a certain extent. But kind of going back to my first question, you've been in this job for quite a long time now. You've got a lot of respect around the cricketing world. You're 31 years of age. You, You know, you've been around the world a number of times. If you put your head above the parapet and said to the powers that be, you know what, guys? let's seriously think about not going to New Zealand. People would probably listen. Have you thought about getting that megaphone out and explaining why New Zealand might be just too hard to square coming up in March and April?
1: Um, Potentially. I think it's quite hard when you're in the middle of an Ashes series and you want your complete focus to be on that. And it has been pretty draining, just things changing all the time and and just getting your head around something and then something else changes. And, yeah, potentially I, I think we've kind of left it to the board. So I think they're pretty set on doing it in New Zealand. There's not a huge amount. I don't think we, that we can do. It's probably a little bit late for that. I just want to know what the point is, what the point is that they, they might change their mind. I'm, I'm not too sure what that is. Cause I think there has to be a point where it's not feasible and, and people decide that this, this isn't the right thing to do. It's, it's not, possible to do it in New Zealand it's not the right decision let's do it somewhere else I don't know whether that point has passed in terms of timescales and stuff but um yeah I don't know I, I think previously I've, I've probably not been willing to speak out but probably the last couple of years I've definitely felt more comfortable voicing my opinions a bit more publicly whether it's the right time to do that now I'm not sure being it, with it being so close that's leaving what was it in less than three weeks now it's less than that, actually it was two weeks two weeks
2: yeah, yeah, I mean it's 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 right around the corner. And so you've you've got this sort of short sharp ashes which is a bizarre thing in itself to to consider that. But does it help a bit getting into an ashes series that you've played so much in Australia and most of the senior players in your team have is you were out here right from the start you were playing with the Hurricanes you were uh, captaining them you've you've been even the one WBBL season when you weren't playing you were out here hanging out down there and, and being over in Australia does it make it easier to take on an Ashes series when you you know the place well you know the grounds there there isn't that sort of intimidation of the unknown
1: yeah, it does help. I think just even knowing little things like where the dressing rooms are, where the best coffee is, where uh, to go for dinner—that sort of thing—is is really useful. And obviously, we're not allowed to see people out here, but having friendly faces potentially from afar is quite nice as well. And conditions-wise, I think we've got so much experience in the squad. And to be honest, it's just been quite nice to concentrate on cricket with the first week that we had and and focus on that. But yeah, like you say, the schedule's pretty mental. It's pretty ridiculous, actually. Like we've we've. Had one day after the rained-out T20s come here and and trying to refocus on Red Bull. To prepare for a Test match in two days has has been pretty tough, but obviously uh, that's the same for the Aussies too.
3: In terms of your prep, uh, that that year that Jeff mentioned you spent in in Hobart without playing in the WBBL, you're here with Tim when Tim was working in Tassie and he was, I think we saw pictures of him feeding the ball machine to you uh, before you left the UK. He's had to take a far more, I suppose, hands-on approach in, in preparing you for this series.
1: Yeah, he has. Um, he was batting left-handed. I've got a video of him, actually, and he um, was doing the old Minus Lavaché la- no-run, and he was shadow <laughs> sh- shadow batting as I was walking back. Uh, I didn't even realise till I watched it back. He was prof- uh, practising his reverse paddle and all sorts. So, yeah, it's been quite nice. Um, pretty lucky that I didn't live by myself for the lead-up to the tour, as, as some of the girls do, because that's... Pretty tricky living by yourself for fourteen days after Christmas and, and trying to train on your own and and bowl at a set of stumps and get on the old um, self field bowling machine. But yeah, pretty lucky that that's the case and um, it did help a little bit. And it's quite nice to to have someone here as well. It's quite funny actually. So I was a close contact of H when we got here, and I, the only one I could train with was with Tim in the nets. So we'd gone from <laughs> indoor training with Tim at home, and then got here finally can see other people and. Yeah, um, an actual cricket coach to throw balls at me, but uh, no, I wasn't allowed and uh, Tim had to bowl <laughs> at me. So that was quite ironic.
2: Does it help a little bit that at least you played a test match in the last six months, five months? Because you you had that one against India. That, that felt really significant, that there was a non-Ashes test being played and that it, it might... Kickstart things a bit, and then Australia's played one against India, and and there's you know you guys might be playing one against South Africa next summer potentially. There's a little more of an appetite for Test cricket, and so at, at least you've had a Test match recently-ish within living memory, instead of two and a half years since the previous time you've got the red ball out.
1: Yes, yeah, huge help um, you don't have to go scrolling around for white pads as well from your sponsors because you know you've used them in the last <laughs> six months so hopefully you've still got them uh, and trying to trying to find your test cap can be a little bit of a challenge as well I think Catherine Brunt has lost a couple of hers and, and had them replaced because <laughs> they just gather dust and Nat and Catherine are constantly moving house so um, I'm not surprised they've uh, misplaced those uh, but yeah no it definitely does help I think it was a really good experience actually having that test match and I really hope that that multi-format series and, and women's test cricket can have a little bit of a future in different series outside the Ashes. Uh, we're hoping to have that in the summer against South Africa and there does seem to be a bit more of a first rip from from different boards which
3: is quite nice i'm interested in your evolution uh, as a leader between 2017 and, and 2022 uh, i recall uh, during the women's ashes last time here you went 2-1 down one day, as in the one dayers and you rock up at north sydney it's a shit heap pitch and really the decision from both teams from pretty much afternoon one was well it's going to be a draw here unless something very unusual happens across the, the four days. And, and so it was. I mean, you could have batted for for three or four days yourself, I think, on that on that pitch. It got better and better and better. But now, as Jeff mentions, you've had a Test match very recently against India. There was one between Australia and India uh, a couple of months ago as well. Do you think that between you and Meg that you've played so much Test cricket now and you've got enough experience that you can go into Canberra thinking very much about the win more than not losing, if that makes sense? You've got enough experience to make decisions that are bolder than might have been the case five years ago.
1: Yeah, potentially. I think that game at North Sydney, you throw in the pink ball as well, which is absolutely dreadful, and you get on a flat wicket and you bowl Mm. straight and it's really hard to score and really hard to take wickets. And it wasn't really set up for us to, to force anything, to be honest. And it wasn't a particularly riveting contest, shall we say. There was very much um, quite a attritional game because of the reasons I stated. But yeah, hopefully Canberra, there might be a little bit in it. We're not too sure. I think it will generally be pretty flat, but I think you do learn a lot as captain when you play in test matches. You learn so much. I, I've obviously played cricket for England for 11 years now. I've only played, what, eight te- test matches. This will be my ninth. So you still feel like you're learning as a leader in, in that form of the game and, and also the skill levels of players having different tools in your your toolbox as a bowler to try and break things open I think is, is really key as well the girls are fitter and stronger now I think than they've ever been um, and can bowl longer spells and, and more aggressive spells hopefully I do think potentially the ball does need to be looked at in women's test match cricket I'd love us to play with a Duke I think with the the lower paces that you, you get in women's cricket and you can often get wicket to wicket bowlers that can be really hard to score off, but also to take wickets. So I think if you played with a juke ball consistently on good wickets, I think it'll make for a much better contest and you see a lot more lot more results. And I think in the last couple of test matches in women's cricket, you had India and Australia. If I had a fifth day, I think it was set up pretty nicely to be a really exciting finish I loved watching that game um, and us against India in the summer as well if um, we'd able to have have another day I think it would have made a real real difference and I think those last two games have shown that women's cricket is improving it's getting more exciting and just a couple of tinkers I, I think will really force the matter to, uh, to, to make it a format that, that people want to keep alive that boards want to Um, keep investing
2: in that whole multi-format ashes in late 2017 it's an interesting one because you guys came back in the the t20s at the end and you leveled it up on points and i know at, at the time you were disappointed because you hadn't got the ashes back you know australia retained but they were really shitty that they hadn't won the series you know like they were Super annoyed about that. Is it something like? Can you look back on it now and have a bit more satisfaction that you actually came back and tied the series up, uh, and and that you did irritate them so much that you did get that result, which which was a you know, I mean, to come away with with level um, series level from an away tour is is a pretty decent result.
1: Yeah, I probably shouldn't say this on an Aussie podcast, but it's always pretty satisfying annoying Aussies to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I do look back reasonably fondly I had a pretty good series with the bat as well I, I didn't really feel any satisfaction with that at the time because obviously we hadn't won uh, and we'd lost the ashes uh, d- despite being a draw so I do look back on that quite memorably as well it was a period where I decided to change my technique and, and tinker with my back lift a little bit and it was a bit of a gamble with a, a short turnaround between the World Cup and the ashes and yeah I'm proud that that paid off and Australia a blooming hard place to go and win, isn't it? So um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll look back. At, hopefully, we'll have an Ashes victory to to get a little bit more satisfaction from. But um, yeah, I, I guess it was it was quite nice to to do what we did and, and level the series. Once we lost the Ashes, that was a pretty big goal of ours to do that.
3: Let's go back, all the way back to when you started playing uh, cricket as an eight-year-old uh, at the local club with your, your brother Steve, isn't it, who, who had you down yeah. there and, um, I mean, growing up in Devon and Plymouth. And uh, what, what was it that, that drew you to cricket and how quickly did it did it take or how long did it take, rather, to, to realise that this was something you were going to be quite serious about?
1: Oh, well, I just loved being down at the club, loads of people buzzing about, um, just being on the side of the pitch in the nets, playing one hand, one bouts we used to get treated pretty well by the barman, lots of free cokes and, and free chips and things like that. And I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a porker as a kid. So I'm, I'd always be in there, always doing the scoring for, for a free tea. Um, but yeah, I just love the atmosphere and I, I love the fact that it was an individual sport where you could be really focused on yourself and, um, and your skills, but also be part of a team and be part of a, a collective and something a bit bigger. So yeah, that definitely drew me and I was, such an annoying little sister to my brother as well I was at the point when I was that age I just wanted to copy everything that he did so I definitely was going to be down there trying to do things slightly better than Steve could um and yeah it was it was a really lovely club as well really welcoming I was the only girl that played there and uh, eventually played with my brother in the first team as well which was a, a really lovely moment actually
2: were there particular people at the club who encouraged you and helped you through, or conversely, people who got in the way and said you shouldn't be there? Like, what was who were the the people who stand out in your memory?
1: Oh, um, lots of players that I played with in the first team, in particular, they just made a joke out of everything. I've often got the odd comment from the other side, like uh, "Do you do the ironing after we finish playing?" Uh, and oh, one of the God. guys called called me, called me sweetheart whilst we were playing, and uh, the rest of my teammates called me sweetheart for the rest of the season. So the fact that they made a joke of it and um, embraced me, I guess, made it normal. Um, made me feel really comfortable and, and able to, to play at the club. There was there was often the the old the ragged old pro. I forget his name now, but there was a guy. Uh, what was his name? Anyway, he played uh, second eleven for Somerset, and he. Um, I don't know whether it was me, but he never would talk to anyone in between overs when he was batting. So as a as a young sort of whippersnapper wanting to be really enthusiastic and have a chat in the middle, I'd go down expecting a bit of a fist pump and he just wouldn't come to the middle, so I'd have to awkwardly tap the pitch, pretending that I was um, just doing a bit of gardening <laughs> oh, no. and that I wasn't trying to get a chat with him and, and head back. And yeah, there was a few comments from the older guys, but I think once once they saw that I could play and that I could hopefully hit it off the square, then um, they were pretty welcoming and accepting.
3: There's this big debate going on at the moment uh, through the prism of the men's team around uh, state education and opportunities for players to uh, to progress through the game and have access to the game. But you're a, you're a product of the state system, aren't you? You went to a government school, uh, and I mean, you, you, what are your impressions when this discussion uh, plays out at the moment that there are gaps there and that we need to try and fill them and get more people into the game? Having your own experience there of being at the club, but perhaps not not so much through the school system.
1: Yeah, I hugely agree. I think there's a real inequality, I think, with, with state and, and private schools. I only played cricket at school because I already played. I played club cricket and the teacher knew I was into cricket and he made a girls' team because I played, basically, and I just got all my mates together and, and we had a game, I played in the boys' team and, and created a girls' team. Um, but I don't think I would have would have played, really, if it wasn't for my club. I played a little bit of primary school, but there was not really the support to to play cricket and yeah I consider it quite a big part of my background coming from a from a public school and, and coming through that route and I definitely wouldn't change it but um, it certainly didn't didn't have a an impact in my cricket career and, and you think of all the talented players that potentially would be missed because of that it's a, it's a real shame.
2: You got offered a spot at Cambridge to study biomedical science there and you turned that down because you wanted to play. Cricket, and so you you studied in Cardiff instead and played. That's a pretty bold decision, given that I mean, <laughs> women's cricket as a career option wasn't very developed. There was the potential that it might develop, but uh, was that? Did you feel like that was a gamble at the time, or you know, did you did you think that it was going to get better, or you know, what was your thought process at that point?
1: Yeah, it's probably been misreported a little bit. It wasn't entirely cricket. Um, I just remember going there and seeing the the gowns at, at dinner and having to dress up formally every night and just thinking this is not for me at all like and i've probably been one to always try and follow my gut a little bit if i don't feel like something's for me and I'm, I'm not too worried about turning it down even though it seems like a a strange thing to do or not the done thing to do the amount of stick from my gran i got when i didn't go to grammar school was unbelievable <laughs> uh, as as an 11 year old child um but yeah, I just didn't really see myself there and I felt like it would actually be really tricky to to play cricket as well. So that was part of it. And I just wanted to have a social life. I wanted to enjoy my time at uni. I wanted to do things that you do at uni, go out and meet different people. And I felt like if I was going to be doing the course that I was doing there, which was pretty mental, busy and doing cricket as well, I wasn't really going to have that balance and and that's always been quite important to
3: me It's a pretty hard road isn't it, before the professional era, you know, you're playing for Berkshire by that stage, all the miles that your parents are doing on the motorway, you're studying um, you're making big decisions as Jeff discussed before between uh, going to Cambridge or not uh, especially when there isn't that safety net that there is at the moment, I mean you had to make a lot of big decisions at a pretty young age
1: yeah, a lot of sacrifices from my parents as well. I used to play club cricket down in Plymouth on a Saturday, I used to drive up, stay at a travel lodge near Reading, and then then play club cricket or county cricket on the Sunday, then head back home. I'd usually be studying in the car for GCSEs or whatever it was at the time. We'd stop for a bacon sandwich at the same services and then mum and dad would go to work on Monday. So yeah, I'm pretty grateful for, for the sacrifices they made. And I guess that that's where I get. My commitment and determination. From they've always been super committed to to helping me, and I think that's been drilled into me at a very young age um, in terms of my drive and, and where I get things from, and always wanting to to make the most out of the opportunities that I've been given. So um, yeah, it was it was certainly different. I managed to squeeze in some social time at school as well. I um, when I went to uni, I was I was doing a lot of driving, a lot more driving than than the general first year was doing. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun as well, and I enjoyed it, and it was just part of my life at that time.
2: But then your first England call up, you're at uni, like your first year uni student. When when you get the call, was that on your radar at all that that might happen?
1: Uh, no, Jeff, I was very much enjoying my first term at university, um, being able to eat what I want, drink what I want, go out when I want, and I was um, definitely not. The model professional athlete, well, I wasn't a professional athlete at the time, but definitely not an athlete, that's for sure. I enjoyed that first term and I was actually playing in an indoor cricket tournament at Lords. and the tannoy uh, went off in the indoor school and said, can Heather Knight please come to reception? And I got told to ring Claire Connor, the the head of uh, women's <laughs> cricket, obviously, and she told me, can, can I get on a plane tomorrow? Um, <laughs> so I had so to leave a message from my personal tutor and say, Um, I'm not really asking permission but I'll be on the plane by the time you get this um, see you in a month sort of thing so yeah that was that was quite an interesting one but um, I was really glad I had that university experience I think as well I think a lot of players that come through the system now aren't going to be able to have that and have that rounded experience and I, I count myself as quite lucky I was able to do that before cricket became fully professional
3: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there's there's been writing about this before that uh, part of the charm of women's cricket before the professional era was that you had sort of well-rounded human beings who'd worked or had families or went to university or whatever it was and they were playing cricket alongside that and it meant for it meant for I suppose a group of people who had better perspective perhaps and had they just been on the on the conveyor belt or the treadmill from age 13 or whatever so there is a balance isn't there the professional era as great as it is it may not quite give those same sorts of opportunities that 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 round you out as a human being that you just got the edge of before cricket goes fully professional in England
1: yeah I totally agree I think some younger players that are coming through generally not all of them but some of them don't have as much perspective as as they potentially should have they haven't lived in the real world as much and i think having that rounded experience that you need gave me a completely different set of mates as well outside cricket which i i think super important particularly for me now it's a it's a way that if cricket's not going well I've got a, a different set of mates that I, that I go to and just talk absolute rubbish with and, and don't really talk about cricket which is a is a really nice thing and I was lucky enough to to do some pretty cool things as well I climbed Kilimanjaro and played cricket at the top of top of there broke a world record and and did some cool charity stuff so I was pretty thankful actually that I was able to do those things because if, if I was 18, 19, 20 now I don't think I'd have the opportunity to do that it would be cricket, cricket, cricket because that's the way the sport's going, you you need to to start a little bit younger, and um, there's the opportunities as well to to start a little bit younger and, and go pretty much straight from school onto a professional contract. So, yeah, there's a, a huge amount of positives with that. I'm not I'm not moaning at all that the game has progressed and changed. But a big part of me is is really thankful that I was, was at that time where I could have a bit of both.
2: It sounds kind of terrifying, though, getting the call up on the PA system. Like, that's I used to get that <laughs> at primary school. Um, I don't know if, if my old, old school principal, uh, Rob Wen is listening in, but it was always, you know, Jeff Lee Lemon, go come to the office, please. And so you get you get called up, you get that call, and then you're on the plane. Tell us about that first trip.
1: Yeah, well, I actually thought I'd park my car in the wrong place or, or clip someone's wing mirror or something, which is why I was getting the naughty call to the office. Um Yeah, the first trip, so it was out to India. I literally flew out, as I mentioned, a, a slightly porky 19-year-old, Um, and I hardly knew any of the, the players that I was playing with. It's a far cry from, obviously, the trip here where we've got the A-team and, and everyone's intermingling, everyone knows, everyone played against each other, played with each other. But I literally knew personally Danny Hazel and Danny Wyatt and um, I was absolutely terrified of a lot of the, the players because you just see them on TV and you don't know them at all so I was a lot shyer I think than, than I am now um, and you're in India where the sounds the smells are an absolute assault on your senses But I absolutely loved it it was it was brilliant uh, once I found my feet I, I managed to get a game as well in in uh, the final ODI of the series and um just yeah remember thinking this is this is pretty cool this is what I want to be doing and I had to go back and write an essay within about 12 hours which was very much a (laughs) crashing crashing back down to earth some sort of physiology essay on plants or something which was like nah this I'm not into this science stuff I I want to be going away playing cricket and and touring that's that's uh, definitely something I want to carry on doing.
3: And I suppose over the next few years, you're kind of finding your sea legs as, a, as an England player. And, and then there's the big 150 in 2013 against Australia, which really uh, takes you to the next level in, in a test match batting for seven hours against a strong Australian attack. It always is in, in those contests. But was that a big turning point for you, knowing that not only could you sort of play at that level, but you could dominate at the top table as well?
1: Yeah, that tour was huge for me. I, I actually got dropped for the first time from an England squad before that. So we had a T20 series against Pakistan where I wasn't picked. And I was yeah absolutely gutted, actually. It was the first real setback I'd had in an England shirt. Um, and I was desperate to do well in the Ashes series. And yeah, scoring that 150 in the, the first game of the series in a test match. As a kid, I was dreamed as playing in, in test match cricket. It was probably the only format of the game that I watched um, religiously. I watched it a lot more than the one day cricket and had it drilled into me that it was, it was the best format. And um, yeah, to to have that innings, I was so tired as well. Like I'd never batted for more than a couple of hours before and having to have two hours, little break, two hours, go again and go again overnight. It was a um, very average night of sleep whilst I was on 90 odd overnight. But um, yeah, I, I definitely, Knew after that innings that I could win games of cricket for England and, and I had that real confidence. And I definitely took that into, into the rest of the trip and the rest of my career.
2: And then the next part of it becoming the real deal is the following year in 2014, the first batch of central contracts come in. England's the first country to have central contracts for women's players. What was that breakthrough like?
1: I was actually coaching with Lydia Greenway. So we were doing a Chance to Shine workshop in some school somewhere. Um, as we used to do, we used to do like two, three days driving around to different schools in a, in a county region. And Lyd came up to me like, mate, you got to check your emails. So I was like, what? What's happened? Just check your emails. So I was like, oh, I'll just go to the toilet and then quickly read my emails and, and found out we were getting the contracts. So uh, I think me and Lyd had a, a few celebratory beers in some in some grotty travel lodge that night to, to celebrate. But um, yeah, it was a, a really lovely moment. I think I'd always dreamed of being a professional cricketer. I, I didn't realise it was a possibility when I was younger. And I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I remember, I think I was probably under 12, Devon boys team. So uh, I remember a training session where I coached John Mears, I asked everyone who wanted to be a professional cricketer to put their hand up. And uh, there's a few of the talented boys that, put their hand up and I was like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to, I want to do that. I'm going to put my hand up. There's absolutely no chance. And then quite a lot of them sticking at me. So you can imagine it wasn't anywhere near a reality when I was a 12 year old, but yeah, it was, it was really cool. Um Really strange as well, actually. Something that is your hobby and, and your passion and something you do not for any monetary reward suddenly becomes your job. And it's quite a strange dynamic how that changes overnight. And certainly the expectation of, of the public and the press changed overnight, and and you as a cricketer hasn't changed at all. It's just suddenly you've got a pay packet. So um, yeah, I think a lot of the girls struggle with actually trying to get the the dynamic right and, and deal with that new pressure that we we suddenly had, and and also um, how good it was as well. And I think we've tried to help the new generation that have, of domestic cricketers that have suddenly become pros overnight because we certainly went through that process, went through those little tricky moments and, and the good moments
3: as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose with Charlotte having been the captain in the uh, amateur semi-pro professional era when you get those contracts in 2014, I mean, you're the next captain. So you are the first professional captain who didn't experience life before that as leader of the team. And I suppose even the way that you inherited the job with a fair bit of controversy with, with, the, uh, with the, the powers that be saying to Lottie, that's it, you're done, despite being, you know, the greatest England women's player of all time to that point. And Lydia Greenway, a mate of yours, being effectively pensioned off at the same time, and you're throwing the armband, you're 25 years of age. I remember you did those press commitments that day, and, you know, you were... I think anyway. My impression was you. It, it was it was daunting. This was a big thing, and all the lights are on you. And you walk out in your first game as skipper there at Leicester and, and make a fifty and, and take a fifer um, with Lottie watching you from the commentary box. I mean, that, that's a that's a big couple of days in your life.
1: Yeah, it was. It was it was quite a weird dynamic. I was close with really close with Lid and, and close with Lottie as well, and it was just quite strange because you obviously feel for them. Lottie was absolutely devastated, as you can imagine, and you're trying to sort of get over those feelings and, and also think about how you want to do things, where you want the team to go and how it's all going to work really. So yeah, it was, it was definitely strange. And the day Robert told me actually I was going to take over the captaincy was the same day that my granddad passed away. So it was a really, really strange day. And, and I couldn't actually hear Robbo when he told me. Um, he's um, not renowned for his pronunciation and I, I could hardly hear him in a in a bar in the Link Hotel in, in Loughborough. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange day, obviously, losing my granddad, and then finding out I was going to become England captain. Um, but I had a little bit of time to to plan and, and work out how I wanted to do things. But, yeah, certainly it was daunting. I, I've never been one to really crave the limelight and crave the attention. And then suddenly you're the, the one that's been thrust at the, the front of photos. When I wanted to kind of stay at the back, you're the one in front of the cameras. So... Yeah, trying to adapt to that, but also something that I've always enjoyed doing, leading a team and, and having that responsibility. And I, I think in that first game, they actually pissed it down the whole day before and we, yeah. we missed a, a day we played on the reserve day. So it was, oh God, it was a nervy uh, day hanging around because you just want to go out there and play. And yeah, luckily it went really well and it was just a nice little settler. For me to think, yeah, I can, I can do this. I can manage my game and play actually better when when I'm captain, when I've got that responsibility. And yeah, it was a it was a nice feeling to settle me down and, and then try and uh, direct the ship and and work with Robbo where we wanted to take the team.
2: It must have been bittersweet as well, though, to not be able to get on the phone to your granddad and say I'm the New England cricket captain.
1: Yeah, it was it was really bittersweet sweet actually. Um Grandad was a, a pretty big supporter. Uh he was he was there actually uh during that Wormsley test when I got 150 odd. Uh and yeah, he was it was a bit bit more immobile then, but he was always a huge supporter. He wasn't a man of, of many words, but he always used to watch watch us play. And um yeah, it was, it was a, a real obviously bittersweet day that granddad had passed away and I wasn't able to ring him up and, and tell him the good news. But um yeah, quite a, quite a strange time actually, but also quite nice to to sit my parents down and, and tell them that I actually waited till till the day of the funeral to to sit them down and and to say like well, I've I've been made England captain. So hopefully it made a, a not very nice day slightly better. And we went to an old restaurant where we used to go with my granddad in uh, in Chorley Woods where my dad grew up. So um, yeah, that was a, a quite nice thing to to be able to do as well.
3: I don't think when you took over as captain, many people would have thought that England were going to win the World Cup the following year. It just looked like a discombobulated team, you know. I mean, yes, new coach, new captain, but losing two senior players, a lot of more junior players getting an opportunity in the top six, but that ended up being the secret to your success, didn't it, with with Tammy Beaumont and Lauren Winfield initially and Nat Siver and all having to play a bigger role in that team and all taking that responsibility and suddenly you got on a bit of a roll and, and one thing leads to another and, and there you at Lords We had 27,000 people there watching you play. Obviously, we were all there um, in a journalistic capacity, but your reflections of, of walking through those gates at Lords that day, um, realising that you were going to be playing off for a World Cup in front of a packed house and 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 you were the one uh, who was going to be steering the ship.
1: Yeah, well, just on, on the period, I guess, when we were rebuilding as a team, it was actually a really lovely time. I remember there was a lot of noise going on in the press and, and obviously... Um, Lottie being disappointed and, and a few people questioned the decision but actually in the camp it was a real chilled calm really enjoyable time actually people were trying to take their opportunity as much as they can and it was I just remember it being a lot of fun um, and we just built so much belief in that year leading up to the World Cup we had no idea how we were going to go but we were we just felt so fresh and we we felt like it was our time, almost. I know it sounds like an absolute horrible cliche, and I'm cringing a little bit as I say it. But yeah, it felt like our time and our tournament to win. It was at home. We played so well. We had so many people in in form, and uh, we just had a, such a good vibe around the group, and just the feeling that we were going to do it. And and then that day at Lords was just a mantra. And uh, I never expected a day like that as a women's cricketer. Um, I think it hit me in the in the anthems actually, as I was. Uh, looking up to the screen and you had a picture of Rachel Hayhoe Flint who passed away earlier in the year and for those that, that don't know she was obviously the, the woman that fought for for women to be allowed to play and, and to be able to, to go into the long room at Lords. so that was pretty special seeing that. You had Eileen Ash at 108 years old at the time ringing the five minute bell at Lords. and I'd met Eileen, an absolute legend of a lady and then just to see so many old faces uh, from women's cricket that I'd played with that uh, Um, been on the journey as female cricketers or supported the game. It was just like, well, this, this is a pretty historic day. And um, I was pretty glad I wasn't going out to open the batting because I was a little bit um, overwhelmed by the occasion, I guess. But I think knowing that I'd been a part of it before the match took the pressure off a little bit, it it made me realize how big a day it was for women's cricket and whatever happened, it was going to be bloody cool to say that I'd played in that game um, and been there and, um, yeah, the game was, it was a pretty dramatic game itself. But, um, yeah, just a, an absolute lovely day and, and lovely way to, to cap it off, lifting that trophy.
2: Slight slight understatement to say it was a dramatic game. It's, it's ridiculous even now looking <laughs> back at it. India need 38 from 44 balls, seven wickets in a hand. And you talked about that feeling of it being your day. I, I think for all of us, when that fourth wicket went down, we felt like, England are going to win this. Like they'll, they'll do it from here. They'll run through them from here. And you had, you had that experience of close finishes. You'd had the really close group game against Australia. You had the really close semi-final against South Africa. Did you, did you have that feeling at that point? Like this is, this is fine. This is, we will do this. We'll find a way to do this.
1: Yeah, I know. I did have that feeling. And looking back, I was absolutely deluded because watching the game back, um, like we did in lockdown when, when Sky did the. The uh, watchback, so I was watching it. I was like, "This is how the hell do we win this game?" I just didn't believe (laughs) we won it when I was watching it back, and I definitely felt at the time we were massively in it. India um, probably were known quite a lot for their long tail then, and we always felt if we got one wicket, we could really go through them. And and I think the required run rate never really got below five or six, and and that can be so tricky in a in a massive final. And yeah, it just felt like we had the belief that we could do it. I had real clarity as well in in terms of who I wanted to bowl and and how it was going to work, and and Anya just had that glint in her eye that today was going to be her day.
3: And in the night, I mean, you hold up the cup and, you know, it's, it, it, it's it's obviously going to be a landmark moment in your life. You're a World Cup champion. You're the leader of this team. You're 26 years of age. You, you made an OBE, I guess, a, a couple of months after that. But it's not all um, not all smooth sailing. Tell us about the story uh, when you had to leave the Gates of Lords and be a bit sick out the front that night.
1: Well, yeah, a couple of hours later, I was projectile vomiting on the Merc um, down <laughs> St. John's Wood Road and I wasn't <laughs> even drunk. I hadn't even had many beers to celebrate. I think I had one beer. So I got some form of food poisoning, although Claire Connors claimed at the time it was the stress of the game. was the stress of the game, Heather? But <laughs> I was Adam and Claire, I just predicted I vomited, it's food poisoning. I've gone through stressful games before. So it's either the dodgy chicken, potentially after the game, although no one got sick, or for some reason I decided before one of the biggest games of my life to order a slightly suspect-looking Vietnamese chicken papaya salad, which in, in hindsight could have been that. I'm still claiming the, the chicken at Lord's was a little bit pink, but, um, yeah, it meant that I was, I was in bed a couple of hours later and about three in the morning, my partner Tim came back from the burger shop where everyone else was bringing me a burger because he thought I'd be hungry, which um, started another vomiting episode. It wasn't the best move by a, a slightly intoxicated Tim, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it did ruin the, the celebrations a little bit. I did get a call from Isha about 3.30 in the morning as well because she'd passed out in the toilets and uh, had lost her phone and didn't know how to get home. So um, that was was quite a funny one that I, I bring up quite, <laughs> quite often with Isha. one of my best mates.
2: Um, do, do you at least get some satisfaction that probably the owner of the Merck was a real tosser and you threw up on their car? <laughs>
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I know the type that live around St. John's Wood and um, yeah, there's no attempt to clean it
3: up, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this, it's this, as I say, the sort a of landmark moment. I, I have a recollection of you being about the following week doing a bunch of TV commitments at the Oval and ending up in the Hanover uh, with uh, with Phil and Felix and a couple of others And the World Cup. I mean, you just brought the World Cup around with you for a while there. That, that was pretty cool. I mean, this is your possession. You can take it wherever you want.
1: Yeah, it was really nice actually. Uh, so I'd done the rounds in um, the commentary box and gone on Sky and BBC and stuff, and, and then just settled in to watch some cricket, have a, a bit of cheese, and, and drink some PIMS. Um, and I gave the Ashes trophy, which is in a box, to one of the security guards, like, mate, this is yours for the next hour, look after it. And as we were leaving to head to the pub, I went to pick up the trophy. Uh, and realised I'd been asking the security guard to protect an empty box, and actually the Ashes Trophy was nowhere to be seen. Uh, Went back to all the boxes, couldn't find it, absolutely panic-stricken I'd lost the Ashes Trophy. World Cup, you mean? Yeah, yeah. World Cup Cup Trophy. I did lose the Ashes Trophy once as well, but that's another story. Um, (laughs) Lost the World Cup Trophy... Uh, after only having it for a week, so there was a bit of a panic. Um, I thought I might be in a bit of trouble, but managed to locate it a little bit later. And, and Felix tells the story actually how the World Cup got got us all a set of chicken burgers um, at the pub for free. So I think it was, was pretty chuffed with his with his free chicken burger at the um, the place <laughs> around the down the road uh, from the Oval.
2: could be a slightly different um, mood to to filling it up with champagne, to be filling up the World Cup with chicken burgers and passing it around. <laughs>
1: Yeah, probably better shape for chicken burgers, to be honest. You, you can't really drink out of that World Cup trophy, unfortunately.
2: <laughs> well, Brad hadn't tried. He he gave it a red hot go. Um, but, yeah, the World Cup trophies aren't built for that. And then you wind up in the, the Wisden Five Cricketers of the Year as well. I mean, that must have been a, a pretty uh, special moment.
1: Yeah, that was lovely, actually. Obviously, alongside Anya and Natalie, we found out, in India. And obviously, not many women's cricketers have, have been in that list before. So, to have three of us was just really special to have Anya on the cover and I guess you, you don't really think about those sort of accolades when you're playing uh, you're just worried about winning games of cricket and trying to win trophies but those things are, are just a really nice thing to have and, and you're part of the history part of the the furniture I guess of the game which is, is a really nice feeling.
3: And after everything kind of has gone right the first year of your leadership things do take a bit of a turn in in year two and, and into year three. I suppose there was a sense that with the Kier Super League having started so well in 2016, around the same time you're taking over, you win the World Cup, maybe a bit of ahead of time, maybe in 17, but nonetheless it. A, a young team that's that's performed extremely well uh, in home conditions. But you press fast forward to 2018. You don't start well against South Africa, which which, which was a striking performance in, in in context. And then I suppose it was a it was a sign of what was to come in 2019 uh, when that misadventure against Australia, uh, where you lost all bar one game, won the last t20, but lost everything. But between then, well, drew the Test match, sorry, but hadn't won a game until the end uh, there at, um, at at Bristol. But it led towards Mark Robinson. Losing his job, and suddenly we've we went from two years earlier saying, "Look how how many things have been gotten right in England," to saying, "Hang on, what about these structural failings? How Australia have overtaken England? How other countries are catching up to England?" And there's almost a moment of panic there, and and you've got to try and keep things together as captain.
1: Yeah, it's funny how when you win everything's rosy, and when you lose everything's dreadful, isn't it? I, I guess that's the 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 way it happens sometimes. But yeah, that tw- that 2019 series, without a doubt, was the toughest period of my career I I found it really tough I I took it really personally actually that that loss and it's a big lesson for me how not to to take things because I probably wasn't leading that well because because I wasn't performing and I felt like the responsibility was all on me which I think is quite an unhealthy place to be as captain you obviously feel like you can influence games as a captain and as a as a player as a batter but ultimately it's, it's not Completely on you, there's other people out there, so that was quite a big learning from me I think from that series and I felt like we needed more more leaders in that in the team. I felt like we'd become too reliant on coaches, too reliant on robert who was was quite a a dominant coach and and very prescriptive with how he wanted things to be done um I have a lot of time for robert I'd, I'd really enjoyed working alongside him. Um, he was certainly a challenge at times and, and certainly challenging in a good way as well, and as well as a bad way. Um, he definitely kept everyone on their toes and brought out the best in players, but also at times was, was difficult, almost too demanding, I think, and, and too prescriptive. He didn't let players grow all the time on their own. And I think after that 2019, I definitely felt massively guilty that, that Robbo had lost his job because... Um, I really get on with him, and he didn't have the chance to turn things around. But I think for the team at the time, it was the the right step to to start over again and and have someone new and have someone that worked in a in a slightly different way. And yeah, I guess it it was a, a period that I looked at myself and my captaincy a lot as well. And I probably in that little period before then, I, I probably tried to be too many things to too many different people, and I really wanted to take or do things a little bit differently moving on from that 2019. I wanted to, if I got the opportunity to captain an Ashes series again, I, I wanted it to, to look different and, and do it in a different way and, and do it in my way, I guess. And I guess you, you're always responsive to the team as a captain, but you have to do it in in your own way as well as doing what the, the team needs. And um, yeah, that was certainly the way forward that I wanted the team to go. I wanted to be, Probably more of a of a bigger voice, and I think that naturally happens with with coaches because when you're appointed as captain, the coach is already there. They're, they're kind of probably a little bit more dominant because you're, you're young in your captaincy, and obviously only being 25 as well. I was I was young, reasonably young as a player. Um, I think that dynamic changes when another coach comes in as well because you're the one that was there before, and you. you you're further into your captaincy and, and know a little bit more about how you want to do things and, and take things forward. So, yeah, I do, I do think 29 was really tough, but also it was a really big turning point I think for me as an individual, as a leader, and probably for the team as well.
2: Did you have conversations with teammates as well about wanting them to take positions of leadership, like wanting them to to be leaders with you in the team?
1: Yeah, hugely. We had a we had a day in the Peak District actually in a in a little barn. And um, we absolutely pissed it down. So we were stuck in the barn all day. We planned to do a few bits. But um, yeah, there was a lot of chatting about where we want to go as a team, how we need to do things differently, where our strengths are that we want to keep. And I spoke about how I felt like we needed more ownership as a team and we needed more people to own their games and be leaders at different times for the team as well. And I do think a lot of players have responded brilliantly, I think like Nat Siver in particular, She's stepped up massively as a as a leader, obviously taking the vice captaincy role as well and a and a few others in the team as well. So yeah, hopefully, although um this athletic series has, has been a pretty funny one, hopefully we can can show in the rest of the series how how things have changed since twenty nineteen.
3: Yeah, sort of coming back to that idea of where you started and where you are. I mean, you're 31 now. Would that be? Is that how old you are now? 31. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you're into that next stage of, of your career. You know, you've seen it all across 11 years in the international game. It, so do you think that you would have had the ability to have had those tough conversations that you've had in the last couple of years, in the years before that, or has it really been a sense of feeling as though you've got that, not just seniority, but that experience to to say what's what and to ask what you require as captain of those around you?
1: Yeah, definitely. The dynamic changes. You go from your infancy of your captaincy to to the girls knowing how you do things, how you want to do things, and I guess the, the respect and the trust, hopefully, is there as well. So yeah, I think it was a, a good time to do that. Obviously, the way we'd we'd lost the the manner in which we lost meant that almost we had a blank slate to to start again and and um, work out how we wanted to do things going forward. Um, so yeah, you you certainly feel like you're stronger voices. You you go further in your caps. you've got that experience, um, and you've hopefully got the players on your side to to be able to help you with that because. You can't be a leader without having other people around you that are not just followers but also um, help you out and, and shape the direction that you want the team to go in.
2: There's a lot of captaincy on your plate. You're leading the London Spirit in the 100. Um, you're, you're leading the Western Storm in the, uh, the other domestic trophies, leading England. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard job. Are there parts of leading teams that you love? Like What, what are the what are the great parts of, of having that responsibility?
1: I'll tell you what, I really loved captaining younger players in the London spirit, actually. It was after we'd been in a bubble. For ages I was a bit like, how's this new tournament gonna go? I'm a bit knackered mentally and physically. And actually it gave me so much energy just working with some young players coming through, like of Danny Gibson, Charlie Dean, and a few others as well. And yeah, I really enjoyed that that part of this part of the captaincy being able to see a player at their infancy of their career and, and try and help them and help them learn, see them make mistakes, but also see them get better and see them grow as people as well. I I really enjoy that part of it. And I love making an impact in the field in games as well. Just the, the buzz that you get when, when you, you make a good decision or you, you make a call or a field placing that, that works out. It doesn't always happen like that, obviously, but it's, it's a, a lovely feeling to feel like you've contributed in, in that way. But yeah, there's, there's also the, the parts of, of Capsie that can start to grate on you as well
3: it's interesting that you mentioned there that exhaustion that some of your teammates felt last year towards the the end of the summer that probably wouldn't have been the case before I mean you had so much international cricket last year and the hundred and the domestic trophies I mean that's a good problem to have that you're playing a lot more cricket and I suppose if if you want to play more test cricket there'll be the need for a multi-day competition to be built into the domestic structure at some point that's a very different world of being a professional cricketer now to what it was in 2014
1: yeah, it is and it was great and on that respect the amount of cricket we had obviously year before we'd, we'd had a lot cancelled and on previous trips we just haven't had the cricket and uh, I think we've been calling for more international cricket I think my first full season in England Colours in uh, what would it have been 2010, 2011 I think we played three one-dayers and three T20s and that was it and a bit of county cricket so it's baffling how different it is now but I think a little bit of that was was covid and restrictions and and various things but in terms of the amount of cricket played uh, I think Lisa spoke about it after the New Zealand series actually about how we have to get used to this is the norm playing this amount of cricket um being on that treadmill sometimes of of playing games but it's certainly what we want as players we want to be playing more cricket I think the balance Probably needs to be kept right. I I think, to be honest, the men's game has gone towards way too much cricket for me. I honestly don't know how some of the players do it. If you play three formats, the amount of cricket that you play is is just outrageous. And it's almost become too much as a viewer for me as well. But I think in the women's game, we've got the opportunity to get the balance right, having enough, but also not going too far and, and cramming it for the sake of cramming it.
3: I suppose you're at the point of your career as well, where uh, you—I'm not saying you're thinking about necessarily what's next right now because you're the captain of England, you've got a job to do. But 31, are you thinking that you'll, if if your form permits and your fitness stays as it is, you want to play till like deep into your 30s, mid late 30s, or are you more along the lines of? Remember Elise Perry a couple of years ago um, asking her this question, and she was like, "Well, actually, no. I mean, I've played." since I was so young, I don't necessarily want to play until, you know, in my late 30s or, I mean, she might get picked till she's um, 37 or 38 or something like that. But whether she goes ahead and does that is a a different question because women tend to start uh, their international journey earlier, as was the case for you as well. So with that in mind, do you think you'll play for a long, long time or or have you already started thinking about what what cricket or what post cricket might look like for you?
1: Yeah, I'll never say never. I haven't made that decision yet for sure, but I've never really seen myself playing too much past 33, 34. Um, whether that will change, I, I don't know. I'm, it's not something that's massively on my radar, but certainly as you you get towards your late 20s, I think you do start to think about that and you start to think this isn't going to last forever. When, you, when you're young, you feel like you're not even thinking about what's next. You, you're just enjoying the ride. But certainly as I got a little bit older, the body started to creak a little bit more and you start to think, oh, there, there's a... Uh, a finite period to, to this career um, which is, is quite tricky to deal with I think and doing something that, that obviously you love but also you, your life changes and you, you become in a different headspace you have different priorities but yeah at the moment I, I still see myself playing for, for a couple of years as captain but um, yeah we'll, we'll we'll see what happens.
3: Do you think you're a lifer? I mean, uh, you you mentioned your great mate Isha. She went from playing, doing her PhD and going back to academia to an extent then, uh, obviously, this prolific broadcasting career. Where do you see that playing out? I mean, Charlotte Edwards, of course, is now um, coaching at the top level and and others uh, uh, like Claire Connor, of course, uh, has done an amazing job as an administrator both in England and now with the MCC. I mean, where do you see that for you? Do you want to remain in the game day to day uh, for a long period of time or, or are you the sort of player who will retire and step away and do something else altogether for a bit?
1: Oh Well, to be honest, Collo, I, I want to go on a massive road trip in Europe. That's my um, one priority when I, when I do finish because um, I missed out on a lot of travelling, obviously starting international career so young. But I definitely see myself staying in sport and I can't see myself being away from cricket for too long. I would like to do something a little bit different, potentially, um, for a little bit to... To see what's out there, but uh, I think cricket is is where I feel most at home, where I belong. Um, so I definitely see myself doing something like that. What exactly that is, I'm, I'm not too sure. I've started to get involved a little bit more in, in terms of sitting on the PCA board and, and Seeker boards and, and things like that and seeing what, what that side of the game is is all about. I'm doing a Masters at the moment as well in leadership in sport at Buckingham Uni, which is is run by Ed Smith. So that's quite... Quite interesting to to get a little bit of a different perspective, sport wise, and, and what happens behind the scenes and, and things like that. So, haven't exactly made a decision. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get completely away from cricket. I'm going to stay in cricket. Yet, yeah, I'm probably someone that will cross that bridge a little bit when I come to it and what opportunities open up. But yeah, I can potentially see myself being involved in in sport and in high performance. Um, I love the variety that the sport brings i can't see myself sitting behind a desk five days a week for sure i think a couple of days max but um yeah we'll, we'll see where it takes i've kind of gone around the houses a little bit there and not committed to everything but um <laughs> it's yeah maybe a little bit of broadcasting as well i've started to dabble in into that a little bit um and it's something i quite enjoy doing talking about the game so um something with a bit of flexibility maybe that's the uh the answer I'm
3: after. Well, I think what what's certain is you're going to have plenty of options uh, when you uh, do finally put the queue in the rack. But uh, for the time being, uh, you have a job ahead of you at uh, the Test match this week in Canberra. Thank you so much for uh, making time for us on the final word today. And thanks so much for what you give the game. It's a tremendous amount. Uh, you're an excellent leader of your team. And uh, yeah, good luck over the next couple of weeks and in the World Cup as well with that defence. Nice
1: one. Thanks, Colo. Thanks, G. Hi, I'm Dave
3: Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Heather Knight, one of my favourite people in the game. I'm glad we got the chance to, to have that conversation. I said at the end there, Jeff, she's going to have so many options uh, when she stops playing, be it coaching, broadcasting. She'll be an administrator, I'm sure, that people want to get their hands on too. And I, in a way, I kind of hope she does get completely away from it for at least a little while. And, and uh, yeah, that, that idea that she was able to start from before the professional era and get these life experiences and if she adds to it after cricket she'll be well she already will be but even more formidable
2: there's there's a whole world out there there is a wide a wide wide world that um that people like you and I have been able to explore more uh, in in more depth than, than people who've been in that sort of system so I'm, I'm glad to hear that, uh, that Heather Knight has the hunger to do that. And, and what a legend. I mean, who, who would think you could get an England captain to chat for an hour two days before an Ashes Test match? I think that says a lot.
3: Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, and, and by the way, I said at the halfway mark when we were recording yesterday, that was a good, that, we, that was a manful conversation. We did well to get through it. I, I since learned that I had COVID when recording that first section, <laughs> as I do now. So uh, if you're wondering when listening to the first bit, gee, these guys are battling a bit today. It's because Jeff just had it yes. and I've got it at the moment. So uh, with that in mind, uh, that might be the point we should um, end the show today. Thank you to uh, the team at Bad Producer Productions who get us on the park a couple of times a week, as I always say to the team at Bad Brick Lane Brewing who uh, provide great support to the show as do all of our patrons. Uh, we'll be back with story time over the weekend I'll have time, I'll have isolation time to prepare some answers and to tell some stories provided I don't get too crook I should say um, that I'm not feeling ill, I've just got a, a head cold and I'm a little bit knackered so mm-hmm. as you were last week I'm, I'm sure I'll bounce back quickly.
2: That that old story it is uh, the story of our times I'm sure that many, many, many people most of the people probably listening um, have had that experience as Well, so yep, plenty coming up over the next uh, few weeks, and as always, we'll we'll have it for you on the final word. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Heather. We'll talk again on the weekend. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at FinalWordCricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks, once again, to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.